Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Parlor, a podcast featuring conversations with rhetoricians about rhetoric. Today, Ryan Chandler is joined by Professor Roderick Hart from the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Together, they'll be examining Donald Trump's rhetoric by examining Professor Hart's work, Trump and Us. Professor Hart, thank you so much for for agreeing to talk with us. Uh, just, just to give you a little bit about me, my name is Ryan Chandler. I'm a I'm a senior journalism and government major here at UT, um, and I was excited to take this interview because a I love interviewing people. B you write about a lot of the things that I've been interested in in studying as part of my government major. But as part of this rhetoric class, we've been reading and, and studying a lot of different rhetorical analyses about Donald Trump's rhetoric, focusing on a number of different theories and, and levels of analysis. And my group chose to focus on, on your work, Trump and Us, because it was unique to us in two ways. The first way is it uses computers to to read texts, uh, which is kind of a new and innovative way to to determine the rhetorical style of of a rhetor. And two, it, it claims that Trump's rhetoric can can teach us something about ourselves. So can you just quickly summarize the project that you undertook with Trump and us and explain how you think it contributes to to the scholarship on this subject? Uh, yes, it's a it's a pleasure to, to, to be with you, Ryan. I appreciate your interest in the book. Well, I hadn't intended to, uh, to write a book about Donald Trump, but uh, the more the uh, campaign went on in 2016, and the more unique his, his language sounded to me, he ultimately drew me in. And I think the thing that probably especially interested me was that, he, that it was so easy for so many people to uh, exoticize Trump, uh, to, make, uh, to make him seem like a a bizarre alien creature. Um, and the more I studied him and uh, what he said and how he said it, the more I mm. became convinced that he was, he was just one of us. May not necessarily have been the best of us, but I didn't find much in Donald Trump that I didn't find all around the everyday life. And yet uh, the popular thing to do was to make him seem like an alien. And I felt thereby um, not digging deeply enough into the phenomenon of Trump. Um, and so I found him to be a very ordinary guy that I had met many times in my life. Um, sometimes the bullies that I had met when I was a kid, um, sometimes the kid that hadn't done their homework but tried to bullshit their way through. Um, uh, you know, I, so I, I found I found him everywhere, uh, and but I didn't find anybody else talking uh, about him that way. Uh, for most people, really including most of the media, he was a strange phenomenon from another planet. <laughs> That's interesting because he was considered to be somewhat of a of a an outsider, an exception to the rule within the the political class within the you know traditional type of person who runs for president, but obviously now with him being the elected president of the United States, his appeal may not be that uncommon among American voters. Yes, and that's true. And I think one of the things that uh, I have 
I think I've never heard anybody react to Trump um, that didn't have uh, what we called academic terms an intertextual response. That is, their own, their own comment had multiple parts to it, some of which were in conflict. So, for example, there was a New York Times study, uh, report recently talking about evangelicals. And um, one of them said, well, I, you know, he's not really a man of character, but I love him anyway. You know, that's a, that's a bizarre kind of testimony. And almost everybody that I've seen uh, has that kind of two parts to him, even when endorsing him. And I think that's intriguing. Yeah, that, that's something that we haven't seen much before, for sure. So I want to dive into to a couple different types of um, rhetorical appeals that you touch on. In your book, you compare the, the post-campaign rhetoric in, in 2008 and 2016, and they sound very different. People were, were very hopeful and proud in 2008, but in 2016, uh, they felt anxious. They were tired of, of partisanship by that point. Do you think that Trump's rhetoric suit, or excuse me, do you think that Trump's rhetorical style fits this Kairos back in 2016 because people thought that he would he would marry the two parties, or because they thought he would he would kind of bypass both parties to achieve his agenda? How did how did his rhetoric suit that moment? Well, I think 2016 left the American people exhausted. Part of it is Trump because Trump is such a hard charging never give an inch kind of candidate. And so that alone was exhausting for, for most observers. But then Hillary was also exhausting uh, because um, she was in many senses a terrible candidate. Uh, she was a very, very hard for most people to like, even though people knew she was wonderfully talented. She was smart, had a sophisticated view of the world, but the tension between them was so amazing, just so exhausting that uh, people were, were kind of left speechless. Uh, and then there was the pink hat march on Washington. Uh, so I think that that campaign really left people just gasping. And it's oftentimes true that campaigns tire people out. But I think this campaign was so emotionally uh, wrenching that it made it very distinct. You also describe Trump as a contrarian candidate. Um, why do you think that he was the only candidate to use that kind of strategy to take that contrarian rhetorical stance um, rather than some of the more traditional stances of like a charismatic or, or, or a designee or, or a legatee? Why, why would that work in, in 2016? And why did Trump choose to have that contrarian stance? Well, it is the case factually that most out-of-party candidates, meaning in this case a Republican uh, trying to get the seat of a Democratic president, uh, that the out-party is always more negative than the incumbent party. And so it's not surprising that, that he would be contrarian from that point of view, that he had to overthrow the existing uh, uh, administration so that uh, Dwight Eisenhower had to say, we've had enough of the Democrats in 1952. And, and uh, Ronald Reagan said, we've had enough of the Democrats in uh, 1980. So that's a pretty standard thing. And then uh, uh, Obama saying, we've had enough of the Republicans in, during his time. So that's part of it. It's built into the system for the out party to be more negative. But in this case, it's Donald Trump himself. He is 
you know, quintessentially a contrarian by personality type. He's the kind of he's a kind of businessman who um, wanted to wanted to win the the account and humiliate his opponent at the same time, and and that made him um, a New Yorker uh, in many ways. But it um, it made him a really a in some ways kind of pathological. Uh, he he needed to knock his opponent down, and he needed to spit at him when he was on the canvas. And do you think that rhetorical stance is going to have an influence on how people campaign in the future? You know, I I think he is completely unique because he he makes he makes everything personal uh, because of his own psychological incapacities. Uh, he he makes it all personal, and I think most seasoned politicians uh, are able to step back from that. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a really, it's a good question. It's a cable television question. We've certainly gotten used to uh, that kind of style on cable television where uh, if I'm on uh, CNN, I have to uh, not only interview you as a, as a conservative, but I have to try to inflict as much pain on you as possible. So to some extent, he is a child of, of the cable, and maybe we all are now. So I think it's a, it's a question. It's a very anti-political approach. Um, I want to move on to, to Trump's ethical appeals now. You say that Trump's plebeian characteristics make him quintessentially American and, and add to his rhetorical appeal. Um, but do his less attractive qualities, like his adolescent moodiness or, or his impulsive discursiveness, also make him appealing to Americans? Um, well, I think that's the question before us at the moment. Um, my, own, my own sense is that the American people now on both sides of the aisle are, are truly exhausted. And, and COVID has only added to that. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't think he can win again by making us angry at people crossing the border. Uh, I don't think he'd win by making us angry at China. I don't think that anger at people is going to be a winning strategy in this campaign. People may be angry at the conditions in which we are uh, included at the moment, such as the economic uh, situation in the country and, and the health situation. But I don't think being angry at people is, is going to get him reelected. He's done that. I think we're tired. One would assume that um, Trump's record of, of false statements and, and lies and hypocrisy would, would diminish his ethical appeal with his voters, but yet his base is consistently unfazed by all of this. You, in, in your book, you call him an empath, someone who, who can turn emotional needs into votes. Um, it, do you think that Trump's emotional appeal to his base is the reason why those people can overlook his, his hypocrisies? Oh, that's a, comp that's a complex question. I do think that he has a good salesman ability to read his customer or his potential customer. Uh, and I think he has, a, he has an ear for emotion that is, that is unique. Um, he can feel what people are feeling. I think he also has no ability to understand other people's emotions or to sympathize with them. But I think he, he, he senses the anguish that people have. And he's, and he's very textured at being able to 
reproduce those feelings so that people feel a kinship with him. And that's why I think he's going to do poorly in this election. Um, because right now, the feelings that people have are ones that, are ones that he's not you know, really very familiar with. He has no uh, sympathy for people's illness. Uh, he doesn't know how to project sympathy. And that's the reigning emotion at the time. Uh, and I think in some ways, Joe Biden is, is, is the worst thing that could happen to him because if there's one thing Joe Biden can do is give that same feeling that Bill Clinton did, which is, I do feel what you're feeling and I don't, on the soft side. And, and, he, and Trump can only do that. He can only feel people's anger, I think. That's interesting. I, I haven't thought about the contrast between these two candidates in terms of the, the rhetorical styles before, but that is what Biden is known for. He's, he's very down to earth empathetic, the the antithesis to Trump in this moment, I think. I, I want to ask you some questions about some other rhetorical analyses that we read for this class. Some some other analysts emphasized Trump's emotional appeals, and, and they pointed to different aspects of his rhetoric. So I'd, we'd like to ask you how your view of, of this idea of Trump the empath uh, relates to their arguments. The first one um, comes from, from the author Ryan Skinnell, who, who argued that Trump's use of parhesia allows him to separate the social function of telling the emotional truth from the rhetorical function of community of communicating factual information. Our, our question to you is, do you think that Trump's truth telling, quote unquote, allows him to express emotions that others are feeling, um, feelings that, as you would say, are ignored, trapped or, or wary? Yeah, I'm not sure I fully captured it question, but yeah, I, I, do, I do think that he, I think he had a, a really good sense of, of the populace. Um, one of the things that's happening right now that's interfering with that is his own geographical removal. And I think it must be driving him crazy that he can't be among his people feeling their feelings. So right now, he, uh, he and Joe Biden are, are both in their basements uh, doing virtual life. And, and that's really a great disadvantage to Trump. He really needs to be among uh, the people who have the kind of feelings he's trying to. I'm not sure if that addresses your question or not. It, it, it does. It does. I, I wanted to ask um, about just two more authors have published work similar to yours. Brian Ott and Greg Dickinson, they focus on Trump's appeal to what they call white male resentment. Um, but you suggest in your book, that um, he's mostly appealing to more benign feeling. Do you think that Trump appeals to people who are racially enraged while also appealing to people who are wary of the political process? Like, do those two go hand in hand? Uh, yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I do, you know, he's, a, in, like so many politicians, you can see in Trump what you want, what you're looking for. And if you're a white male resenter, you can certainly find that in him. But I think you can also find the people are interfering with my life. You can find the kind of things that Ronald Reagan found, that government has gotten too big and it's, it's I, I feel my, my personal freedoms are being infringed upon. Um, and, and that's a less toxic version of the, the white male resentment thing. But I do think that he, uh, you can see in that, because he's a, in the old old days of politics, you'd call him an againer. He's against things. You can make a list of the things that Trump is against very, very quickly. If I asked you to say, okay, immediately write down 10 things Joe Biden 
uh, is against. It will be harder to, to make that list, but we could certainly fill it out for, for Trump. For sure. That's, that's very interesting. Professor Hart, this has been really interesting. I don't want to take up a whole much more of your time. Um, our, our last question for you um, was <laughs> meant to put this all together and kind of summarize what this means for this year. Uh, but I think you already answered it. Um, we wanted to ask whether this Trump style of, of contrarianism and, and emotional empathy would work in this election year. You, you say it won't. Is that correct? Well, um, you know, I think he's going to run a, a, very, uh, a very intense race. I think it's, to me, it's the dominant emotions that got him in, which is to run against other people. Uh, immigrants in particular, and even he ran against all of Barack Obama's fellow African-Americans. Uh, he ran against uh, liberal feminists. So you can, you, can, you can go down the list of people he ran against or types of people he ran against. Um, right now, I'm just not seeing a, a handy group of people that he can run against. You know, he'll try China. It's just that's so that's so distant and so far away uh, for most people. Uh, and people like the Chinese. I mean, it, it's just it's going to be. I don't know who he's going to pick as his as his scapegoat. Uh, he's tried to you know the scientists are, are don't know as much as I know about COVID nineteen, and he keeps auditioning these potential. Uh, sock puppets, but I'm not, and I don't think he knows any other way to behave other than to run against groups of people. And these groups just aren't presenting themselves very handily at the moment for him, or so say I. Hmm. See, 2020 is definitely much, much different than 2016 in, in terms of what kind of rhetoric is appropriate to, to meet this moment. But between the pandemic and, and a reckoning with racial relations and um, widespread unemployment, what do you think Trump would need to do in order to fit his rhetoric to this moment? And is it possible at this point that he really changed his perception rhetorically? I think this moment is calling for, um, for him to, to come to get beyond himself. And I don't think he's capable of getting beyond himself because he is at the center of of his world, and so his uh, his his ratings on television uh, are really really important to him, and that kind of self-absorption is, I think, beclouding his ability to see the world uh, as it is out there. He, you don't get the feeling. I don't think very many people get the feeling that Donald Trump really really deeply personally cares uh, that we may hit three hundred thousand deaths. From COVID. And they may say, oh, his people may say, oh, yes, of course he cares. But I don't think they feel that he feels badly for them. I think that's a liability at this moment. Well, that certainly is interesting. We'll see how his rhetoric can, can play out in the next few months, talking to voters before November. Um, Prof Professor Rod Hart, thank you so much for, for talking with us. This was really interesting. Oh, it was an honor to be with you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Special thanks to Professor Hart for speaking with us and Professor Longacre for facilitating the recording. Additionally, thank you to David, Jenny, 
Yi and Tucker for the questions included in this podcast. Opinions from this podcast belong to the speaker alone and not to the Department of Rhetoric and Writing or the University of Texas at Austin. Again, thank you for listening.